Welcome to The Productivity Show, the Asian efficiency podcast dedicated to helping you make the most of your time, attention, energy, and focus. In this episode, Brooks and I dive into the topic of mastery. You may have heard it said that it takes 10,000 hours of practice to become a master at something, but that's not necessarily true. You can spend those 10,000 hours practicing something, but if you're not doing it right, you're not going to get the results that you're looking for. But if you follow the four keys to effective, deliberate practice that Brooks and I share in this episode, you can not only make sure that you achieve mastery in a particular area, but you can actually decrease the number of hours that it takes to get there. If you're looking to get better at a particular skill or maximize the limited amount of time that you have to devote to a side hustle or business, then this episode will explain how you can make sure that every time you sit down to work on your particular project, you're making significant progress and moving towards the level of mastery that you're looking to achieve. You can find links to everything that we share in the show notes by going to theproductivityshow.com slash 144. And now, on with the show. All right, so today I've got Brooks Duncan on the show, and we're going to talk a little bit about deliberate practice, which is another topic that came up in the dojo. So how are you doing today, Brooks? I'm excellent. How are you? Awesome. Ready to talk about deliberate practice and mastery? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So the topic of mastery, we should probably define this a little bit before we jump into the weeds. The concept of mastery is popularized by Malcolm Gladwell, though I don't think that's actually where it originated, but he popularized the 10,000 hour rule in his book, Outliers. Have you read that book, Brooks? Uh, yeah, I uh, I read it quite a while ago. And since Malcolm Gladwell is Canadian, and since a lot of the 10,000 10, hour examples he used were about hockey, of course, I was I was all in. I was all, tell me more, tell me more. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I did not know that. And I actually have not read this book myself in its entirety, but I am familiar with the the contents of it and this 10,000 hour rule, which essentially, and since you've read it, maybe you can correct me if I, if I throw out some wrong information here, mm. but the belief is that it takes about 10,000 hours of deliberate practice to become a master at something. Is that the gist of it? Yeah, that's the gist of it. And I, I have a very strong suspicion we're about to get into this, but you know, a couple of years ago, so that 10,000 hour rule became pretty popularized, I would say, and throwing thrown out a lot. Uh, but I remember a couple of years ago, a lot of articles came out and studies came out and said, well, this general concept of 10,000 hour rule and the research isn't really super legitimate. So I don't want people to be listening to this and being like, oh, gosh, not 10,000 hour rule again. <laughs> it's not it's not so much about this magic rule of 10,000 hours. I think, uh, and I suspect uh, what what we're going to get into is it's not the 10,000 hours that it's important, some magic number. It's having this thing that you're working towards and and doing it right. Don't just go through and have some tick box, you know, work back from 10,000 hours and think because you do things 10,000 times, all of a sudden you're going to become a master at it. It's not quite that easy. Yeah, exactly. Now, obviously there is a, a component that hard work is definitely a part of this. You do have to put in the time if you really want to become a master at something. But kind of what we alluded to in the intro is that how you do it is going to drastically impact how long it takes to become a master. And also, it's not just achieving a certain level uh, of of mastery and, and being able to say, I'm a master at this thing. Uh, but as we're going to talk about in this episode, it's it's the process that you go through to become a master at something. And the the daily deliberate practice that you do, if you do it the correct way, that actually provides substantial returns in every area of your life. Uh, but like you said, you just can't practice. You need to practice right. And kind of the where we're going to jump in here is that when you practice right, it needs to be difficult. It needs to be hard. Uh, you need to be challenged if you're really going to improve something. And so I've been in that place before where like I've played violin since I was five. I've played guitar since I was in college. And, uh, in in the area of, of musicianship, especially the tendency is well, the expectation is that you're going to practice, but how you practice is really, really important. You can practice for an hour a day. And if you're just doing the same thing that you've done over and over and over and over again, it's really not giving you any benefit. But when you sit down and you, you apply yourself to learning a new scale or trying to do this exercise faster or more accurately or whatever, that's where you see the improvement. And so the mind shift change that you you, that you uh, employ when you 
approach your, your deliberate practice that way, that's getting into the topic of deep work. And so the point mm -hmm. I put on here is that deep work is essential for mastery. Yeah, I, t I totally agree with that because I, I think of it almost like fitness in a way where, you know, if you're starting from an extremely unfit place, then just going to the gym and walking on the treadmill will actually have a, a lot of benefit for you for sure. But once you get to a certain point, just doing that is not going to is not going to take you further. You've got to really challenge yourself. You've got to really uh, make things harder and harder every time. Uh, so it's the same thing for whatever you're trying to master. Yeah, definitely. And uh, the whole concept of this deep work actually comes from Cal Newport's book, which is titled Deep Work. Uh, have you mm -hmm. read that book? Yeah, excellent book. Yeah, this is probably one of my favorite books of all time. Uh, and I want to just define real uh, at, at the beginning here, what deep work and shallow work look like so that people can identify kind of whether their deliberate practice, quote unquote, is it falls into either one of these categories. So deep work, according to Cal Newport, is professional activities which are performed in a state of distraction-free concentration that push your cognitive capabilities to their limit. So this is pretty much anything creative. If you are working really hard on something that is creative, uh, then that is going to fall under the deep work category. So um, learning to play an instrument, for example, that would be considered creative work. If you're doing any sort of design work, that would be uh, that would be considered deep work. Anything where you're not just following a set uh, a set of, of specified instructions and you're just following the the, the outline essentially, then that is going to be uh, classified as deep work. Whereas shallow work is non-cognitively demanding. This is the type of stuff that you can do in your sleep. The logistical style tasks, which are often performed while you're distracted. So I guess maybe that's the acid test is if you can multitask, it's not, it's not yeah. you're not doing deep work. Um, but the really important point here is that the shallow work activities tend not to create much new value in the world and are very easy to replicate. So going back to some of those creative examples that I threw out, the top designers, the top musicians, people see them perform, they see their work and they're like, wow, that person is amazing. That's very difficult to replicate. And a lot of, a lot of uh, musicians, designers, artists, whatever, writers would fall into this category. I don't know, maybe you could apply this to podcasters too. I don't know. Any, anything mm -hmm. where you're, where you're creating something, uh, you're going to be able to hold that up and be like, wow, this is an original. There's not really anything else like this. Whereas, the shallow work type stuff. This is something that you could very easily automate or delegate. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I'm coming at this from uh, a certain perspective because, uh, as you probably know, uh, I just came through this period of doing a number of, over the last few months, I've done a number of different new uh, conference speaking. So I've spoken at conferences. So in the last few months, I've done four brand new talks at different conferences all over the United States. And so I'm, I've been deep in uh, public speaking mode. And this is an area just being speaking and also being at these conferences, watching other talks, you can just tell the people who have put in the deep work for really focusing on building their, their talk and also practicing their talk uh, versus the people who who are just kind of going off some notes and hadn't really put a lot of thought into what this was going to look like. And you can definitely tell the people who have put in the deep work. Yeah. And I would say you could probably even tell uh, maybe the people uh, who are going off the cuff, so to speak, or they just are going off of their notes, they may still have a very smooth presentation but if you look at the quality of the presentation, the content of the presentation, usually you can tell who are the people who have really thought about how is the best way to communicate what I'm speaking, as opposed to the people who just followed a checklist and threw together some slides as well. Yeah. And not only that, but, and the people who speak, and this is not to say speaking off the cuff is not a good way to go. There, a lot of really great successful talks are that way, but chances are the people who can pull off those off the cuff talks are people who have put in the deep work learning whatever topic it is that they're doing. So they have such mastery of it that they can just stand up uh, and just go for it, right? So it, it can go from either side.
Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's kind of the approach that I've I've, I've discovered Toastmasters takes. Uh, I've gone through and I've given now probably like 15 different speeches. So I've achieved my first award, which is the Competent Communicator Award. And all of those speeches that I give are written out. And so I've, I'm preparing those. I'm, I'm writing the outlines. And a lot of times I'm even memorizing those speeches. But another part of Toastmasters, which has also improved just by me being there and going through the process of actually writing those speeches is the impromptu speaking where the t- the table topics where you get up there and you don't even know the topic that you're going to talk about until you get to the front of the room. And then they say, here, talk about this for two minutes. Now go. So uh, I think that's a, that's a great example, like both sides of the, of the coin there, different opposite ends of the spectrum, but how they, they complement each other. So this is a good example of how master deep work, just like any other skill, like you gave the great example of how you were, you know, you've put in this work to become a master. I will say you're a master at public speaking, (laughs) (laughs) no problem at at public speaking. And you've, you've really learned how to do a great job on the, these presentations that you've, that you've put together and put a lot of time and thought into. And by building that mastery of that, it's also like, allowed you to acquire these other skills and being able to speak off the cuff at these table topics. And you never would have been able to do that. I don't think, I mean, some people just have this natural ability, but most of us don't, uh, you wouldn't have been able to do that if you hadn't already mastered all those other skills as well. Yeah, definitely. It scares me to death every time that I (laughs) I do it, but uh, it really just illustrates the fact that when you apply deliberate practice and you follow the routine, the, the correct routine, you know, if you follow the deep work format, then that just makes everything else easier. You see gains in every area of your life. So uh, the next point here is that you can master deep work just like any other skill. And it's kind of cross categorical. It's very generalizable where you don't necessarily have to apply the deep work in speech writing, for example, f- for that to show up in other domains uh, the fact that you are applying deep work in speech writing means that whenever you apply deep work in another area, like I'll just use myself as an example, I'm, I play guitar and I sing on the worship team at, at my church. So uh, the fact that I'm applying the deep work mindset while speech writing means that my practice when it comes to my instrument actually gets e- easier as well. And that is because the process of doing deep work is actually like mental pushups. It's, it's your brain gym. And when you do deep work, it actually makes it easier for you to learn and acquire other skills. And this kind of gets into the science that's in deep work. Uh, and we won't go too far down this rabbit hole, but essentially what happens at a, at a physiological level is that the cells in your brain produce a substance called myelin, which allows them to fire faster and cleaner. So when you do deep work, you produce more of this myelin and then your brain cells fire faster and cleaner. And then that allows you to both learn things faster than also as you're learning things it helps cement those skills. So if you are doing deep work, that means that whatever you're going to practice next is going to be more effective. It's going to improve the quality and the effectiveness of that deliberate practice, no matter what skill it is that you're practicing. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So then there's a formula for doing deep work, which is also taken from the book. And this is where I want to really point out that this is something that you can control. Okay. So up until this point, maybe you're hearing me talk about, hearing us talk about deep work and you're saying, well, that sounds great. If only I had the time to do that. Well, the formula for deep work, there's a key here. Uh, The formula for deep work is actually time spent times intensity of focus. So the time spent that comes back to the whole idea of mastering the 10,000 hour rule. And that you can't necessarily control, especially if you are like me and you've got kids. Uh, Sometimes your schedule gets thrown out the window. I know you've got kids too, Brooke, so you you probably know what that's like. (laughs) But you can control the intensity of your focus. And I think a lot of people just are content to not maximize the intensity of their focus. And our technology has kind of reinforced that. You know, where we come home from work at the end of a long day and we sit in front of the TV and we veg out. That's not <laughs> that's not any sort of intensity of focus. Okay. So your brain gets used to that. And I was seeing this in some forums that I was looking at today where people were complaining about their lack of focus. And they were saying things like, Well, when I was in, in college, I was able to read 
you know, multiple hours a day and I had no trouble. Now I can't read to the end of this article, you know, that, that sort of thing. And that's because this is a habit that you have to establish. But if you do the right things consistently, then you can actually make this easier uh, and, and, it's, uh, and you can actually make it more effective. So you can't always maximize your time. But the point I really want to emphasize here is that you can maximize your intensity of focus, even if all you've got is a couple minutes here or there. Yeah, for sure. There's, there's always those little periods of time. And it's true what you say, like, I, I'm, I'm thinking back to when I so I'm about to really destroy any credit credibility of being uh, cool here. But back when I used to run a BBS, <laughs> I used to think <laughs> of, I used to, uh, which is a bulletin board system kind of before the internet, I, I would get in the weeds so much of setting up all these crazy little configuration files and stuff like that to customize it, get it just right. And, and now, you know, because I haven't really done that, whenever I get to something that I have to set up, my first in my first instinct is just as Oh, I'll just go with the default. And so I have to kind of remind myself, No, you should really go in and learn how to set this stuff up because it, it just helps you it, it helps your mastery of that tool. Yeah, definitely. Technology makes it so easy to just disengage and do the the bare minimum. But the people who are successful and the people who are going to be successful in the the new economy, Cal Newport points out, are the people who actually cultivate the ability to do this deep work. And I, that's actually my story and how I got connected with Asian efficiency. I won't tell the whole thing here because I think I've I've told it before on the podcast, but I got the idea to write a book just like I think it was 81% of Americans believe that they have a book in them and that, that, that they should write it. But like 0.4% actually follow through and write it uh, every year based on the numbers of books that get published. And uh, so I got this idea to write a book and I was looking at my my calendar and I'm trying to figure out where am I going to find the time to write? Because if you don't create the time to write, it's not going to happen. That's what was happening to me. I looked at my schedule and the and only time I could find consistently was early in the morning. <laughs> and I'm naturally a night owl, so I didn't really like that idea. But I realized that if I didn't start getting up early, then this was just not going to happen. So I started getting up at 5 a.m. so that I could write for an hour before I went into the office. Uh, and I did that consistently uh, only for a couple of weeks before I got connected with Asian Efficiency and Tan asked for an example of my work <laughs> and I sent over the blog that I started, you know, two weeks earlier and the rest, as they say, is history. But the, the end result is that I did actually get my book published and it didn't take nearly as long as I thought it would. I heard somebody say once that we tend to overestimate what we can do in the short term mm. and we underestimate what we can do in the long term. And what that means is that if you're going to plan out your entire day, you'll usually pick out more things than you can do in that specific day. But if you were to plan out what can you get accomplished in, in a year or whatever, you're, you'll generally uh, undershoot there. Uh, as long as you implement the uh, the, pro the practice of doing this, this uh, stuff consistently, that's the key. Is If you get up an hour, uh, like I was getting up every single day, Monday through Friday, in order to write, and that just leveraged the compound effect. Every time that I did that, it got a little bit easier, it got a little bit easier. The number of words I was able to write and also the quality of words that I was able to write uh, both went up. You know, after after uh, eight months, I actually had a had a book done. So uh, just, I guess, an encouraging story from, from my own life that y if you just focus on maximizing the intensity of your focus, then uh, you really don't have to worry about the the time. Uh, obviously, you do want to devote as much time as you can to it. But if you've, if you've only got a little bit of time to devote where you are right now, then don't worry about that. Uh, just do what you can with what you have. Yeah, I was speaking with uh, Amber De La Garza, who's a productivity specialist. I was speaking to her uh, the other day, and she basically told me a very similar story when she was building her business. She looked at the time she had available and the only time she had to really focus on how she was going to build that business was to just wake up earlier and earlier and earlier and, and just having that focused time, uh, really paid off her. I mean, obviously she was able to build a business, so it worked for her too. Right. And this isn't necessarily a, a podcast about getting up early. There are separate no. <laughs> podcast episodes for that, but really it's about, uh, the process of, deliberate practice and implementing the deep work mindset, no matter when you have 
time on your schedule in order to uh, to implement this. And so now maybe let's talk about some of the other benefits that you get when you apply this deep work mindset. And there's three of them here. Uh, number one, I put deep work optimizes your performance. And uh, when I do this presentation, we do a presentation periodically on deep work and we'll give some more information on that presentation at the end of this episode if you wanted to, uh, to join that. Um, but in that presentation, we talk a lot about this whole idea of optimizing your hard drive. Uh, so I'm, I'm old enough to remember when computers had spinning disks <laughs> and uh, there was a, a tool that you would have for your computer called a, a defrag application. And what it would do is it would look at your physical hard drive and it would look at all the little bits of information that got scattered all over your hard drive from all of the copying and deleting and all of that. Uh, when you ran this defrag tool, what it would do is basically line everything up again so that it was easier for your for your hard disk to find the information that it was looking for. It would access it more quickly. And uh, the, the brain is essentially your physical hard drive. So what deep work actually does is it essentially defrags your brain <laughs> <laughs> where it makes it easier to recall information. It makes it easier to learn new information, new skills. And when you're talking about deliberate practice, obviously that's very important. Uh, as you learn these new skills and they not only get cemented so that you can move on to the next thing, uh, but they help you to master the ones that you've already, uh, already attained. Yeah. And, oh man, I'm now picturing, uh, defragging my, my old 286 computer and the, watching the little blocks move, move, move across the screen as they're getting, as they're getting defragged. <laughs> yep. Uh, and it, it's true because I think of when I used to have my corporate job and sometimes if I was under a really big, uh, time crunch, I really had to get something done. I, I would work from home and people would say, hey, you know, how could you work from home? Because don't you have, you know, get distracted by all the stuff at home. And I think I say, no, when I work from home, because there is no distractions around, you know, the regular office distractions, I end up, I ended up working way harder than at the office. And, you know, you get that thing where you realize you've been sitting there, cranking out on your important task and you realize, man, I haven't gotten up to get a glass of water in two hours or whatever, uh, because you get into that deep work mode. And then, and then at the end of the day, you just can't believe how much you've, you've uh, produced. Yeah, definitely. And that actually leads perfectly into the second benefit of deep work, which is that deep work increases your happiness and fulfillment, uh, because it doesn't really matter what work you are doing. What matters is your approach to the work that you are doing. Uh, what people really want is not an easy life, but a fulfilling life, according to research by Mihaly Csikszent Mihaly. I believe that's how you pronounce that name. Well uh, done. <laughs> he's the Distinguished Professor of Psychology and Management at Claremont University. He's also written a book called Flow. He's done a, a ton of research that shows that people who are able to get into that state of flow, which I think is very, very similar, if not the same thing as deep work, often are happier regardless of how much money they make. So that means that it doesn't really matter what your job duties are. How you approach your job duties is what makes the difference. And there's a, there's a story about three bricklayers, which again, I think I maybe have told this on this podcast, but uh, the stranger walks up to the first bricklayer and he says, what are you doing? And he's like, what's it look like I'm doing? I'm laying bricks. You know, and that's the guy who just is cranking out widgets and he doesn't really care for his job. Uh, then there's another guy who walks up to the second guy. He says, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm, I'm building walls. Uh, and then he walks up to the third guy. He's like, what are you doing? He's like, I am building a great cathedral to my God. And it's just, they're all doing the same task, but it's the approach that they take to their work that completely changes their perspective of their work. Uh, and you can do that no matter what your job is. I don't care if you're you know, cleaning bathrooms and, and sweeping floors you can apply this deep work mindset. And when you do that, uh, the whole concept of the deep work book by Kel Newport is that the more that you do that, the more economically valuable you become in the new economy. So if you don't like where you are right now, maybe you don't even like that job. doesn't matter if you apply the deep work mindset and you are just investing everything that you have into what you are doing, then that's not going to take very long for that to translate into the career, the, into the career capital that you need to leverage into the the job that you want. Yeah, that was actually, I would say that's the most impactful book or the impactful part of the deep work book to me was when he was talking about 
how the deep work can make you more economically viable. And I hadn't really thought about it that way before. And it's so true. You, you know, you go back to the the people we were talking about who is saying, you know, they can't even read, <laughs> they can't even read a white paper anymore uh, that mm -hmm. you were mentioning earlier. You just think if, if you are somebody and by you, I mean, uh, you who is listening to this, if you're somebody who really is able to get into that state of flow and focus on something, you're going to be so much more ahead of the people who don't even think about that stuff. And that can really being somebody who I want to be happy and fulfilled in my work, but I also like money. So uh, that is something <laughs> that that is something that can really, really pay off for you. Yeah. And a lot of times people will look at it as like, well, I just need my big break and then everything's going to work out. No, you have to be happy with where you're at right now. And then that will that will translate into the, the future that you want. And that's actually the third benefit here of deep work is that it makes you more economically valuable. Cal Newport does a great job of outlining this in the book, but essentially deep work is becoming increasingly rare at the same time that it is becoming increasingly valuable. So the people who are able to develop this skill, it's going to become even more noticeable and they're going to be rewarded. There's going to be a demand for those types of people. And in the book, he talks, he tells the story of, of Steve Martin. And I love this story where he's being interviewed by Charlie Rose and Charlie Rose asks, uh, asks him, a uh, question about uh, like what what do you get asked all the time or something like that. And Steve Martin says, "I get people will always ask me how do I get to where you are essentially, and what they're looking for is this is how you get an agent or this is how you write a script. They're looking for that one tactical thing that they can do, and then bam, magically like they're they're in the same position Steve Martin is. And he says that his advice to those people is always the same: it's become so good that they can't ignore you." And he says that if you become really, really good at something, then people are going to come to you. And doing deep work is how you become really, really good at something. Yeah. And in fact, well, so I'm going to preface this by saying there's nothing more annoying to a lot of people than when podcasters talk about their kids. So I promise that's not what, <laughs> where, where, I'm, where I'm going with what I'm about to say. Uh, but in our family, uh, we're just going to the point where uh, my oldest son's age is getting starting to get tiered in soccer. And there is these elite levels that kids are ending up at. So all the teams are kind of getting split up into these tiers. And it's been interesting for me watching this because I've been watching this certain group of kids basically play since they were five years old. Now they're t they're 12. And the kids who end up in these higher elite levels tend to be the ones who I happen to know would would go practice on their own. You know, they would go focus and kick balls against a rebounder or go out to the park on their own outside of the regular practices and whatever else they were doing. And the kids who were maybe really good at younger ages but didn't really focus on their, in this case, soccer craft, you know, they're still pretty good. It's not that they're bad, but they're not the ones that are going to this extra high level. So it's been interesting to watch that. Yeah, exactly. And I remember when I was, uh, when I was younger and I played tennis and I took, uh, took lessons and I was pretty highly ranked in the, the state at one point I played in college. So I was pretty decent. Um, but the people that I took lessons with, you could tell the people who were just there because their parents made them go <laughs> and the people that really wanted to get good. And by the time we were in high school, it was very, very evident. Uh, you know, we were not, we all started at the same level, but we didn't end up at the same level. Uh, and I want to back up a little bit from that point and just talk about the people who are listening to this podcast, because there's a very important concept here. And that is this compound effect concept. When it comes to deliberate practice and deep work, the magic here is that you don't necessarily need to have all those hundreds or even thousands of hours sunk in by a certain time, by the time your age, whatever. You can start where you are with what you have. And if you maximize the intensity of your focus, you can not only catch up to, but surpass the people who got a head start on you. Because this compound effect, if you do it right, what it does is it it, the more you stick with it, the more it exponentially increases your results. And so there's a, there's a story that I, I use to illustrate this uh, about the guy who invented the game of chess. And I know I've told this on the podcast before, but if you haven't heard it, it's really, really important. Uh, the guy who invented the game of chess, supposedly the story goes that he was asked by the king of the country where he lived, 
what he wanted as a reward for this awesome invention. And he said he wanted one grain of rice doubled for every square in the chessboard. Now, a chessboard is eight squares by eight squares, so 64 squares total. And the story goes that the king was a little bit offended initially that he hadn't asked for more because he didn't think that was a whole lot. So one grain of rice for the first square, two for the second, four for the third, eight for the fourth, etc. But after a week, he asked the royal treasurer if he had paid the man yet. And he said, no, there's not enough in the royal treasury because that one grain of rice doubled 64 times, leveraging that compound effect ends up being a number I can't even pronounce. It's like 9,000 trillion grains of rice. <laughs> right. And that's just 64 times, you know, of doubling. And so those 1% improvements that you make every single day, the 1% increase in, in focused, deep work and deliberate practice that translates to much, much, uh, a much higher percentage improvement than if you were to just make one giant 365% improvement every year. You know, if you made 1% improvement every day, you're going to be much better off. Totally true. All right, so uh, let's talk a little bit now about applying the deep work concept to deliberate practice. And there's four keys here that I want to highlight. And the first one is to develop what Kel Newport would call a craftsman mindset. This was maybe my favorite part of the book. He tells a story in the book about a craftsman who's actually from Wisconsin, and he's a master blacksmith. He, he makes swords, like Viking swords. Uh, and there's obviously not a whole lot of demand for Viking swords anymore, but he's so good at it. And the process is so hard that there are people who collect these things and they are very, very valuable because no one is willing to put in the time to make them the right way. And so this guy has made a, a successful business doing this and he's, he devotes this, this mindset to uh, what he's, what he's crafting. And it's, it's insane because it takes tens of hours to uh, to to get this sword exactly the way that it's supposed to be. But if you strike it even a couple times too many, then the whole thing can break and you've lost all the work that you've done. So you really have to be paying attention to what you're doing. And so in the book, he talks about how a craftsman is a person who is skilled in a particular craft. And so this is interesting to me because a lot of people when they're thinking about, well, what do I want to do with the rest of my life? You're going to college, you're trying to decide on your major. You know, a lot of a lot of times the advice is, well, do what you love. Do the thing that you you love to do. Do the thing where if you never got paid for it, you know, wouldn't wouldn't feel like work at all. And that's Kel Newport would argue, and I would agree, not good advice. Follow your passion is bad advice because the passion mindset. And this is Cal Newport saying this, not me. <laughs> the passion <laughs> mindset focuses on what the world can offer you. The craftsman mindset focuses on what you can offer the world. Because the passion mindset is all about, well, you should let me do this thing for a lot of money because I enjoy it. And that's not necessarily sustainable. Whereas the craftsman mindset is, I've developed this deep work mindset towards my work, so I really enjoy it but you should pay me a lot of money to do this thing because I'm the best there is at this thing. And that's a much easier case to make. <laughs> yeah. I used, actually, the first time I got introduced to Cal Newport's work was I used to go to this uh, event that still goes on every year called the world domination summit. And uh, let's just say the world domination summit, there's a lot of follow your passion uh, kind of vibe. At least there was the first few years when I went. And so uh, Cal Newport spoke there in one of the years. And so he gets up on stage and he basically, this was right around the time that his, I, one of his books, So Good You Can't Ignore You was released. And so basically he gets up on stage at the World Domination Summit uh, with all these follow your bliss uh, people in the audience. And he, <laughs> yeah, he basically says, you know, follow your, follow your passion is terrible advice. And you could hear the audience like gasp, like, oh, what are you talking about? <laughs> and, but to me, like, if I think back at all the, the talks that I had heard over the, the years that I went to this particular event, that's one of the ones that stuck out the most. Uh, and, and having read more of his work and just thought, and, thought about it a little more and looked around, I think that is very true. And also on the topic of the craftsman mindset, a lot of times we think about craftsmen as, like you said, like the sword maker is a, is a great example or, or whatever, but it doesn't have to be related to making something in a certain way uh, either. Just this morning, I was reading this book uh, that uh, Tan from Asian Efficiency recommends called Confessions of a Pricing Man. And he was giving an example of a story where 
he needed some really complex tax advice. And so he got so he, uh, you know, talked to this, this one global tax accountant, the guy uh, answered his question in and spent, let's say 30 minutes on it, and gave him a bill for $1,500. And I think this was even back in the 70s and 80s. So it was some outrageous amount. And so so he the uh, the author legitimately thought that this was an error, like you know maybe he tacked on an extra zero. So he phoned the guy up and he said, "Hey, you know what what's up with this?" And he said, "You know, you can definitely get a, a better price from someone else, or a, a lower price, I should say, from someone else, but they are probably going to take more time, and the the advice that they're going to give you is not as good as the advice that I am going to give you." And he thought about it and thought, you know, yeah, paying extra to this person. So we get back to this concept of making you more economically valuable. This particular global tax accountant had mastered his work so much and spent so much time developing his practice that he was able to charge these premium prices. And probably over time, uh, the author saved money anyway. Yeah, definitely. There's there's stories like that in in every industry, but I mm-hmm. I really like that story. So th- thanks for pointing that out. But yeah, that's that's exactly what Cal Newport's talking about in in the book. Is he, he talks about the people who are going to be do really well in the the new economy, and one of the categories is the people who are the very best at what they do. How do they get to be the very best at what they do? How do they get to be that global tax accountant who knows his stuff inside and out and doesn't need to spend nearly as many hours with a client? because they just know the stuff and they know exactly what to do with, with whatever problem is presented to them. They've developed this craftsman mindset and they've applied it to their work. They've applied this deep work mindset to, and they've deliberately practiced till, till they've gotten to the point where they have these skills. And so, yeah, that's coming back to the developing the craftsman mindset. The question that Cal Newport says you have to ask yourself is what can I do that's hard? Mm. That's the thing that's going to be valuable in the new economy, there's going to be a lot of things that are going to be difficult for people to do, and they're going to be looking for people who can help them with those things. Uh, and so if you can find something that you are able to do that is difficult and then practice to get even better, you're going to be very economically valuable in the new economy. Definitely. Like going back to the public speaking thing we were talking about, sitting in your or standing in your in your office practicing a talk is not easy, but it, it's not super hard going around and speaking to different groups who really don't know who you are and may not even be super receptive to whatever it is you're talking about. That's what's hard, but that builds your, your public speaking muscle in this case. Yeah. What's difficult is getting over the fear of public speaking. Public speaking yes. is the number one fear. <laughs> number yeah. two is death. So if you're going to look at this from a certain perspective, you could say people are more scared of, of getting up in front of people than they are of dying, which makes (laughs) absolutely no sense, but it's a perfect example because that little bit of fear, that little bit of friction, which once you do it, honestly, it's, it's not that bad. It's difficult still. I I get freaked out every time I have to give a talk, but the rush that you get from doing it far outweighs the fear that you experienced before in my own personal uh, opinion anyways. But the people who will never apply the deep work mindset are never going to feel that rush. All they're going to feel is the little bit of fear. I was just going to say, and this kind of leads into the next point that we were going to talk about, which is pushing yourself. Exactly. Uh, there, there's no risk in uh, being, well, my, my office is in my basement. So there, there's no risk in me uh, standing in my basement, looking at my wall, uh, practicing a, a talk. There's a lot of benefit from that, but no risk. But but pushing yourself and putting yourself in front of people who don't know you, that is, is pushing yourself. Yeah, definitely. And so one of the things that I put under this point here is the hard things rule, which is something that I picked up from the book Grit by Angela Duckworth. Have you read this book? No, it's on my list. I'm actually really interested to hear what the hard things rule is. (laughs) All right. So essentially the, uh, this is a great book. I, I really like this book. Uh, But what Angela Duckworth does in the book is she unpacks the reasons why some people are successful while some people aren't. And she does research in a lot of different places. She went and spent the day with the Seattle Seahawks and talked to Coach Pete Carroll. She also uh, followed the people who applied and were admitted to West Point to figure out, like, what are the people that stick and are successful? And the thing that she landed on was that they had this resilience or this grit that caused them to overcome any difficulties that they encountered. And so in the book, she talks about this hard things rule, which she implemented with her family. And my wife and I actually are just implementing this with in our family. 
where the hard thing rule, there's three parts to this. Number one, everyone, including mom and dad, has to do a hard thing. And a hard thing is something that requires daily deliberate practice. So this could be uh, getting up and writing. It, it could be uh, practicing an instrument. But everybody has to identify one thing that they're going to do that is that is hard. And then the second part of this is that you can quit that thing, but you can't quit it until the season or the session is over. So once you say, yeah, I'm going to go out for soccer, you have to stick with it until the season or that session is over. Uh, And then number three, you get to pick your own hard thing. So uh, my wife and I are... She's she's creating the the scoreboard that we're going to hang in our our kitchen so that everyone can see uh, what everybody's hard thing is. But uh, well, last last Sunday in our family meeting, we talked about the the concept of this. She really liked it. So uh, in the next week or so, we're going to actually have our kids identify their own hard things. We're going to identify our hard things, and we're going to put those in the kitchen so everybody can see them, just so we get in the habit of applying this deep work mindset and not just giving up whenever the going gets tough. Because as Angela Duckworth points out in the book and, and all the research uh, that goes along with it, the people who are able to persevere through these things are the people who actually are successful. So we want to instill that in our kids as well. That's really cool. I like that. <laughs> yeah. So number two, push yourself, essentially no pain, no gain. Um, and, and honestly, uh, a negative example of this in my own life would be going to the gym. Uh, I've always been a casual gym goer. <laughs> I go mm-hmm. almost every day. But I've never hired a trainer and I, I just don't want to. I just I just like going to the gym, listening to my podcast, and I almost use it as like a meditation time. Uh, and as a result, I'm not as strong and I'm a little bit flabbier than maybe I could be. <laughs> but uh, that's because, you know, I'm going by myself. I don't have a spotter who's going to, you know, when I'm doing the bench press, I'm, I'm, I'm intentionally not pushing myself to the maximum. But I know that because I don't, I don't. I don't see the results that I could be getting as well. Yeah, that's a great example. All right, number three is be consistent. We've talked a lot about this already, uh, but this is a really big thing. And it's a a big area of emphasis at Asian Efficiency as well. We've actually developed a whole product around the concept of rituals. And we won't spend a whole lot of time talking about this because we've done that in, in several other podcast episodes But the idea behind the morning and the evening rituals is a really important one because that is the time in your day, the morning ritual especially, where if you are intentional, you can carve out the time to do whatever it is that you want to do and you you say you need to do consistently. But most people won't take the time to think through how to actually make that happen. Yeah, and and once you do make it happen, then... You don't need to think to yourself once you do set up those rituals and know what it is you need to do, because a lot of times we fall down because we just don't know what to do. We don't know what to do next. And then we're tired. So we think, oh, yeah, I know I should do something. But even figuring out what that something is would just be too hard. I'm just going to watch TV or Netflix instead. Whereas once you've taken a little bit of time just to think what those rituals should be, then it's just like automatic almost. You, you know what it is you need to do. So it makes it really easy to be consistent. Yeah. Essentially, there are some common key components between all the different successful morning rituals that people have, and you can craft your own. But if you take a little bit of time to think about it, you can actually create the time and the space at the beginning of your day to consistently take action on the things that are that you say are important to you. So, for example, some people might say, well, I really know that I should meditate uh, because I'm really stressed out during the day, but I just don't have the time. Or I really wish that I could read more, but I just don't have the time. Or I really wish that I had time to exercise, but I don't have the time. But the truth is that if you identify those things, you can stack all of those things at the beginning of your day and crank them out in a lot less time than you might think Uh I think my morning routine probably takes about an hour and sometimes I even get done a little bit early where uh, I will, I'll just walk through my, my morning ritual right now. I've got a, a bottle of water. It's about 20 ounces of water uh, that I have uh, sitting by my bed. So it's ready for me. As soon as I get up, I prepare that the night before I put a little lemon in it. So it's good to go. When I wake up, I drink that water to get my body hydrated and get everything 
uh, get everything flowing. Um, after that, usually I'll use the, the restroom and then I will set aside time to read my Bible and pray. So two things that for a long time, I was like, oh, I know I should do those things, but I don't have the time. <laughs> well, I do them at the beginning of my day and honestly, it doesn't take that long. And then I've been, I've had some, uh, sciatic nerve issues in the, in the past. So I make sure that I have time to stretch every day. I've actually got an inversion table that my wife surprised me with for my birthday, uh, last year it's in our, our bedroom. So I'll make sure that I, I use that for a couple of minutes. Uh, I make sure that I have all of these things done before I, uh, before I even leave my room. Uh, so I'll do all of that. Then I'll get in the shower. I'll get ready for my day. I've got my clothes set out from the night before. By the time I'm done with this, it's probably 45 minutes, but I've checked a whole bunch of boxes, which mm -hmm. if I'm honest with myself, these are things that I would always say, Oh, I should really do that for myself personally, but I just don't have the time. And I'll just use my, I'll pick on myself again, you know, as, <laughs> as an example, uh, for a long time, I thought that, and what ended up happening was I would set my alarm earlier and earlier and earlier because I knew that I was going to have to hit snooze about five or six times. <laughs> okay. I spent more time hitting snooze, procrastinating on getting out of bed because I didn't want to face my day and go through another day where I couldn't find the time to do these things then it takes me now to do my entire morning routine. <laughs> yeah. Nice. It's crazy. And then the morning routine, like the more you do it, the easier it gets, the quicker it gets. It's like your, your, your body's efficiency mechanism. It becomes accustomed to that and it doesn't even take as much effort. Yeah. And these, these rituals and routines really help with doing the deliberate practice as well. Like leaving aside the finding the time part, uh, just going back to my public speaking example again, what I do is when I have, I know I have a conference to prepare for or some sort of talk to prepare for, I have a, a template in OmniFocus that I copy and paste into that project. And one of them is rehearse, you know, fill in the blank. And then I just set that to, re to uh, repeat every, every weekday. And then every day OmniFocus is prompting me, you know, rehearse for that, rehearse that, rehearse that. And then because it's all consistent and it's all already defined, I know, okay, that's one of the things I need to do today. <laughs> right. All right. So number one, develop a craftsman mindset. Number two, push yourself. Number three, be consistent. And the last one here, number four is develop a strong vision or know your why. And uh, this is really important. And a lot of people maybe think they know their why, but if it's not causing you to take action on these things, then it's not strong enough. So uh, one of the exercises that I've heard in the past when identifying the real reason why you want to do, so do something is ask the question why five times. Mm. So why do you want to go to the gym? I want to get in better shape. Why do you want to get in better shape? You know, et cetera. And just keep yeah. drilling down until you get to the essence of the real reason why you want to do something and then attach to that. And uh, I was going through some comments on another blog recently where a lot of people were complaining about not being able to focus. And I noticed when I was going through these that a lot of people were saying something like, I haven't been able to focus on this thing since college. But when I was in college, I used to be able to focus for hours at a time. You know, I used to be able to read for four or five hours a day because I had to. And now I can't read for 10 minutes without being distracted. And that was interesting to me because I, I was thinking about that. Like, why, why is that the case? And I think that part of it is when you're in college, at least my college experience, you have teachers, instructors, professors who are giving you assignments and they are dictating when you have to have these things done by. In essence, it's almost like a parent who's telling you that you have to do this thing. And then once people leave college and they get, the, the job, which is essentially why you, you go to college yep. uh, to get a good job. Now you're in your job, you know, so you kind of disengage and you coast for a while. Uh, and then all of a sudden you look up and you're like, oh man, I can't focus on anything. So the question that I'm asking myself after reading through all of these is how do you train your brain to listen like you would to a teacher who just gave you an assignment without the added stress or the all nighters? <laughs> that's yeah, that's great because you know, of course, once you leave college and enter the working world, you do have a lot of deadlines and stuff like that. And for the most of us, you know, there's a boss or something that's giving us assignments. But a lot of those are kind of 
shallow work type things uh, a lot of times. Yep. So a lot of those deliverables we have are, are shallow work and nobody's telling us to do the really uh, high value stuff that we need to do the deep work to really gain ma mastery and move to the next level. So that is a, that's an interesting, interesting exercise. I wonder if something that would help would be help for this stuff is to almost find somebody, an accountability type person, because we don't, we don't no longer have that teacher giving us an assignment, but maybe if, if uh, somebody had a friend or a colleague or somebody in a mastermind or whatever that was holding them accountable for those deep work type mastery, deliberate practice uh, type tasks, I wonder if that would help. Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, that kind of is the whole goal of the 12 week year concept. Mm. Uh, we'll put a link to the episode in the show notes where we had Brandon Wentland on, he did the 12 week year module in the, the dojo. Uh, but essentially the, the goal of the 12 week year is to take a, a goal that you want to accomplish in 12 weeks, break that down into weekly milestones and then essentially daily habits that, you know, as long as I do these things, then that's going to produce the results that I'm looking for. And then you grade yourself essentially, uh, every single day. Did you do this thing? Did you not do this thing? And at the end of the week, you've got a score and it's pretty evident, you know, whether you're making progress on it or not. I implemented it the first, uh, first 12 week year, uh, at the beginning of this year. And I did, did not do very well, <laughs> uh, but that's important to know. Um, and the dojo actually has a, a whole section where people just post their 12 week year, uh, 12 week year goals specifically for the reasons that you were talking about, Brooks, they realize that they need people who are going to hold them accountable to these goals and just getting it out there, just telling somebody else, I don't know why this is, but often that's the difference between us just saying, Oh, I don't feel like it today and actually following through yeah. on what we said we would do for sure. Uh, but if you want to learn more about this topic of deliberate practice and deep work, we actually have a free presentation coming up that'll dive even deeper into these topics and provide us an opportunity to answer your questions about deep work live. So if you wanted more information, you can check out the productivityshow.com slash deep work and the date and time are going to be on there. We're still putting the finishing touches on the presentation. So we haven't nailed down the date hundred percent as we record this. By the time you're hearing it, everything's up and it's ready to go. So you'll definitely want to sign up for that presentation. And to do that, go to the productivityshow.com slash deep work to save your spot. Now, this is probably going to be the biggest presentation we've ever done because it's the first time we've promoted it on the podcast. <laughs> uh, and we'd like to accommodate everyone who's interested in joining us. But I know since we're promoting this on the podcast that this is going to fill up fast. So if you're interested in this topic of deep work and want to attend this presentation, don't wait to save your spot. If you want to join us for the live presentation, make sure you sign up by going to the productivityshow.com slash deep work. And then as always, you can find links to everything that Brooks and I discussed today in the show notes by going to the productivityshow.com slash 144. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next Productive Monday.